Hey, let's go. Uh, thanks for turning out in the, you know, as we get closer to Christmas, I know it's harder. So let's pray and then we'll just chat just a little bit. So tomorrow is Gaudete Sunday, Rejoice. The names, the old names come from the introits, the words that were used at the introit as the pastor went to the altar. And you'll notice it's one of two times that the pastor wore a rose color, which is sort of, you know, purple but gone a bit lighter. And we do that in the third week of Advent and the fourth week of Lent because these are penitential seasons where you might be fasting or recalling your sins or preparing yourself for Jesus to come either to the manger or to the cross. And that can be burdensome for people who take it seriously and really go after it. And so the church recognizes that. And so even though the purple is a glorious color, on the third week of Advent and on the fourth week of Lent, the color lightens slightly just to give you some hope, just to remind you, you know, your sorrows will come to an end and your penance will be over and life will be good and Jesus will appear. So uh, Gaudete, rejoice, even in the middle of Advent. And uh, you'll hear that again the fourth week of, uh, of Lent. So, O Lord, accept our prayer and supplication and grant that we may heed the call of John to prepare the way of your Son and receive him into our hearts, that we may become your children through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, good to see all of you. Thank you very much for being patient. Uh, I know you were patient last week when we didn't have, uh, you know, the 5K. You had to kind of circle to get here. And then this is Christmas sharing. So this has morphed. In, it's gone in different directions uh, because of COVID, but this is one of the biggest things we do. So one thing that will be important for you is to find a spot to have some fun at St. John. It's a big place, but our goal is always to make it feel like a small place. And one of the ways it feels like a small place is if you find a Bible study or a place to volunteer or something you love to do. So uh, we will work this morning with two other churches, and I think they told me there'll be 1,400 people, and that's about 300 families. And it's one of the biggest things that, uh, it, uh, kind of charitable things that we do. So we'll give away 40 or 50 or $60,000 worth of uh, food and gift cards and stuff to uh, the community today. We get the names through the schools. They're people who are uh, often uh, impoverished. And often they're newly come to America. In fact, one year I think we had 34 different language groups so uh, of people who come to see us. And it's actually a lot of fun when it's in the building because you have all these cultures colliding, including ours. And it's very, very interesting. It's one of the most fun things to do. But now, this year, because of COVID, it gets all moved outside. They've done a great job of figuring it out. But then you didn't have a place to park, so thanks for being patient and you know, finding a place. Uh, usually we have so much parking, but some days we don't. So anyway, thank you very much for that. Uh, then, if you could grab a catechism, I want to take you into that, but maybe in a different way than you've, than you've done it before. It's, there's a chance that all that we've done have, has, felt, has felt very simple to you, and if that's true, uh, that's actually okay. But I'm trying to convince you of some very basic Things so um, you know this. These might seem completely obvious to you, depending on whether or not you have grown up in the church. 
But I'm not sure they're going to be so obvious to you when your parents die, or you're the one who has cancer, or you lose your job, or something happens to your child. So it's easy, you know, on a Saturday morning we're here, you know, our biggest strain was getting up a little bit early and coming. So today, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, or, or maybe it's not, right, depending on your circumstance. But there's a lot of, um, everybody talks about God as if they know him well, and there's, I spend a lot of time with false claims about God and undoing bad information. <laughs> And when things go south, you really have to have very simple bits of good information. So here's the thing. God is love. You've heard that a thousand times before. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> that's because you're a hippie that you think that. All right. I, you know, don't, the first thing is don't think I'm really talented. That would take you in the wrong direction. Okay, we're going to try this again. Um, I wanted to go the long way. God is love. Yeah, everybody can say that, and it's a nice idea, but now the Lutheran difference is God is for you, not against you. And when you're suffering... That's really the hard thing for you to remember, that God is for you and not against you. That God is always for you in everything. That even when God punishes you, God is for you. Right? And so um, God is for you, and uh, God is love. It's very difficult to remember those two things. And then... um, to love, and there's many definitions of this that I would use. For example, one is love is to do good, to do good, to actually do good. But um, for today, if you could enjoyfully embrace this, ooh, oh, I didn't do that. If you could joyfully embrace this, that to love is to obey. And we chafe at that because in the end we we actually don't believe that God loves us. I want to try to convince you of this. That every sin is a sin because we don't believe that God loves us. It's the devil's temptation. God doesn't love you, so you should go on your own. And I want to try to do that through maybe a different reading of the Ten Commandments. So, you can see what you think. But grab a catechism, because when you join the church, we'll say, um, you're all in just the way you learned it from the catechism, right? So it's important once in a while to have a look. Uh, but usually I try to back you into it. So the very first page is page 13, right? Now, what, this is very important to understand. The Ten Commandments is what God sees when God wakes up in the morning and looks in the mirror. So the Ten Commandments are just a reflection of who God is. 
or the Ten Commandments tell you what's important to God or what God values or how God acts. In the same way, when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which people talk about as the new Ten Commandments from the new Moses, Jesus is giving you his job description. This is who I am as Messiah. This is what I do. So if you will, Jesus is the living, breathing, walking, eating, dancing Ten Commandments in the flesh. Because the Ten Commandments are all about love, which is all about obedience, which is all about joy, which is all about holiness. And it's when these things are synonyms that you begin to understand who God is and you get a glimpse of heaven. If you want to know what heaven is like, heaven is a place where everybody is holy, everybody is in love, everybody is joyful, and everybody has their proper place in obedience to God. And all of that's in the Ten Commandments. Now, you wouldn't think this, especially if you grew up with a pastor who yelled at you, you know, who every time they spoke about the Ten Commandments came at you like this. Because after all, we looked at how, the ten, how we got the Ten Commandments. We got the Ten Commandments when the Lord said to the Israelites, wow, you are in bad shape. You are in rough shape. You've been slaves for 400 years. You don't have any gods. You don't have any land. You don't have any freedom. You can't go to church. Come on, let's go to the promised land. I'll take good care of you. So the Ten Words... The Ten Commandments are really gospel before their law. God comes and says to you, I love you and I want you to come and live with me. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I want to be close to you. I want to give you all my gifts. And the only time when things go badly is when we forget that faith agrees. In a word, right? Faith agrees. So, in a couple of weeks or whenever we get to it, we'll do holy, we'll do confession. God says to you, you're a damn sinner. You say, I'm a damn sinner. He says, that's okay, I love damn sinners. You say, you love damn sinners. He says, I'll forgive everything. You say, you'll forgive everything. He says, I love you. You say, you love me. And on you go into the liturgy. See, faith just agrees with what God says about us. But we have difficulty with that because we like to be little gods and we like to define our own lives and our own worlds and we think we have a better way. And did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? Right? Does God really love you? Is he holding something back from you? You see how this works. Every sin begins with a lie that God doesn't love you. So the church when it's at its best, is constantly reminding you this very simple thing, that God loves you, that God is for you, that it's best for you if you obey, that the only way to a joyful life is to live next to God and with him and for him and from him. And that then is faith. Faith says, yes, thank you very much. I'll have some more of that. This is fabulous. You're the best for coming to get me you know, help me do better, right? So let's see if we can read the Ten Commandments in that way. This is page 13 in the Catechism. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods. 
So God wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and sees only himself. There aren't any other gods. There's just him. And anybody else who would play God is just pretending, whether it's Adam or Eve or you or somebody on television or something that somebody chiseled out of a piece of stone. Or as Isaiah says, he makes fun of the people when he says, you take a log, you split it in half, you carve an idol for yourself out of one half, and then you burn the other half in the fire to keep warm. Really? That's your God? Or the ten plagues in Egypt, which are ten ways that God makes fun of ten gods in Egypt. So frogs were a god, and Nile was a god, right? And the sun was a god. So what does he do? He makes fun of false gods by manipulating them, slaying them, right? So it's just a very, very basic fact. God is the only God, you know. I, the Lord your God, am one. So he's the only God. Don't, and so he says to, I mean, this is good information for you to have. I love you. You should know I'm a one of a kind. This is how Jesus comes too, right? This is what we're going to celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus is a one of a kind. He's God in flesh, a one of a kind. So basically, the first commandment is, I'm it. I'm a one of a kind. I'm the only one, and the good news is that I love you. I'm it. I'm God. And if you take anything else for God, it's going to go very, very badly. Because no one else and no thing else has the ability to sustain your life. I'm the only one, right? God is love. So, don't have any other gods. That wouldn't be good for you. That'll take everything south. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, Fear, we always have this, you know, I'm afraid, like monsters are coming. You know, think about it more in terms of fear, I'm going to meet the queen, right? Uh, think about it more in terms of fear, you're going to meet whomever is your favorite sports hero. Think about it in terms of respecting the order, understanding the importance, recognizing the otherness. And yet this person calls you close to hold you dear, and tell you wonderful things. Fear, love, and trust, right? And trust, faith, agrees. So he says, you know, I'm God, and you say, oh, you're so different. Remember when Jesus heals people and they go, oh, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. Right? No, Jesus doesn't make you depart. Jesus pulls sinners close. So he loves you and he pulls you close. We understand who he is, fear, and trust. We understand that he's for me. Fear, love, and trust in God. He loves me, he's for me, and I agree with that. So, I'm your God and you'll be my people, to which we reply, you're my God and we will be your people. Now, here's the thing. We could stop here. Because you don't really need to know anymore and there's actually no more sins. Love is the only virtue. And turning your back to God is the only sin. So to love God is to be perfect. To perfectly love God is to be perfect. All the sins you do is because you don't love God. And if you don't love God, then you don't trust God, then you don't fear God. 
But there's just one sin. It's the sin of pride. I love myself more than I love God. Or I love something else more than I love God. If you just stopped here, that's all you need. What's the great commandment, they say to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And then if you just need a little application of that, love your neighbor as yourself. But what's the great commandment? This is it. You only need really one commandment. God is. God is love. So God exists. God is. God is love. And God loves you. Okay, a little pause. So we often talk about grace and mercy. Grace is God's predisposition toward you, his attitude toward you. So grace is he looks at you and loves you. Mercy is the very specific application of love to whatever your misery is. So he looks at you and he loves you, Barb, and then he touches you. If you're sick, he heals you. If you're sinful, he forgives you. If you're hard-hearted, he softens you. So grace is his disposition towards you, his loving disposition towards you. And mercy is his loving application of healing to you. By his wounds we are healed, right? And this is all you really need to know. I mean, if you just, if you just could get this much, if, we could, if, I could, if I could just confess this much, everything would be fine. Everything in life would be a gift and a blessing, including my death, including my suffering. Everything. I would say about every last thing, this is the gift from God. Come, let us enjoy it. Even my death, which is the transition from this life to a life where everything is lovely and everything is beautiful and everything is joyful and everything is obedient and everything is light. So um, we grow up, at least if you're like me, um, with pastors who were always like this. You're a bad boy. And yet, of course, God intends just the opposite. God leads with love. The creation story is a story of love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other, and so there'll be more people to love. They create you. Right? It's a, it's a love story. I love you, you're my own, and Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. And the Lord does say, you know, don't touch that. And don't eat that. That wouldn't be good for you. But that's just like you saying to your kid, you know, don't touch a hot stove. Is that love or is that hate? When you say to your kid, you know, don't put your finger in the garbage disposal. Do you love them or do you hate them? You love them. So even when God says to you, don't have any other gods, he's doing you the greatest possible good. He wouldn't want you to run to darkness. What he wants is to pull you into light. And all that's in the first commandment. You shall not have any other gods. Why not? It's because it's not good for you. Because it's a lie. Because it's darkness. Because it ends in pain. (laughs) Because it puts you in league with the demonic. Right? Don't have any other gods because I love you and I want what's best for you. If you've ever been a parent, you completely understand this. If you've ever been a child, you understand this too. Does that make sense? Can you, can you go with this? Because if you can do this, 
the rest of your life just kind of washes through. Everything else is fine. So you go to the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which basically means, right, we should fear and love God, so be respectful and understand and love and embrace. So we don't misuse his name. How would you do that? Curse, swear, use satanic arts. You know, it's, uh, I've, I just read an article, I think Wall Street Journal or someplace, about the run of witchcraft games for Christmas, including ones where people cast spells on each other. You sort of go, or the new thing of hexing people, right? So when the Supreme Court justices were, um, you know, up last time around, last few times, there were covens in New York City, I read specifically, but other places too, where they gathered to hex the new candidates or the new nominees. Um, You only have to be in the presence of a demon-possessed person one time to take this seriously. So, uh, you know, at your own risk, but to your own peril. But you should run as far as you possibly can from anything that opens the door to the demonic. So, uh, grievous sins. And we talked about this a little bit last week. It was such a good catch, David. It's so good, you know, reading your confessions and looking at this stuff. But grievous sins that are done or visited upon us, you know, open us, um, wound us, in the way the germs go into a wound, the demonic comes into our lives. One of the chief ways that that happens is when we misuse the name of God. So it never bothers me with, you know, I think I've said this to you, if a kid drops an F-bomb confirmation, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But if they say, oh my God, or worse, God damn it, that's completely off, off limits and impossible. That's the thing that becomes punishable because God may answer that prayer and you have no status or authority to damn another thing or to damn another person. Nor do you uh, have, and I've, uh, um, sadly, even with Christian kids, uh, there's more and more interest in what's called white witchcraft. You know, witchcraft that does good. But you have to just parse that now. Witchcraft, by nature brings power to the powerless. And so it tries to manipulate God's world against the wishes of God. So I'm God, and I'll decide who should be cursed and who should be blessed. I'm God, and I'll do that by manipulating the demons. Now, I'm not going to get too far in the weeds here, but magic works by uh, casting spells, and spells work by naming the demons and bringing them under your control. The problem is, with the first mistake, the demons are free and take control of you. So when I was in Cambridge studying, I, I was in an old man's library, a bright old theologian, and I was going through his books, which is what you know you do when you're somebody else's library. Big fat book, I start to take it off the shelf because I didn't recognize it. And he said, not that book. And then he said, well, you're older, you know, you're a graduate student, you can, you can take it if you want, but be warned. Um, it was a book of, um, an ancient book of spells uh, on witchcraft, how to practice witchcraft. So that one I just left in place. But um, you should not curse, 
swear, use witchcraft, because all of those things put you in the place of God. And we just said at the first commandment, you weren't going to be in the place of God. Because when you take God's place, you hate him, you don't love him. And you're on your own, you're not an ally with him anymore. So, um, the only commandment is love God, or have God as God, or don't have another God. You can say it in a bunch of different ways, or love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. You can say it in a bunch of different ways. But every other commandment is a violation of that one. Now, the good news for you is um, that God gives you his name. And this is the difference between Israel and all the other contemporary cultures. This is the difference between Christians and everybody else. Everybody else has an idol, a stone, a wood, a statue, a river, a volcano, an imagination that they create and control, that they can carry with them, that they can manipulate, that they can use, that they try to figure out how to please, even to the point of sacrificing enemies caught in war or their own children, Moloch in the Old Testament. So we think of ways we have to please God because we have to show God that we love him because we don't want him to hurt us. You see how this all runs against the first commandment. God who is love and cares for us and holds us dear. The Israelites were different though. All they had was the name of God. But when God gave him gave Israel his name, when he gave them his name, he gave them himself. They weren't to look him in the face and they couldn't bear his brightness or his presence. And so you remember when the Israelites were down the mountain and you know, he says, bring the people near, the Israelites go, Moses, you go, right? They're too frightened. Fear, love, and trust God. This would be in the fear part of that. And then Moses goes up and the remarkable thing, he sees God face to face and lives. And he comes down the mountain and his face is shining. Or Jesus goes up the mountain of transfiguration. And they see the face of God and live. And Jesus' face is bright. Right? Well, uh, the good news is, is that the Lord gives you his name. Call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. So if you need forgiveness, Jesus is the name for you. Right? Or call his name as Yahweh at the, at the burning bush. Who are you? What's your name? Says Moses. I am who I am. I will do what I will do. I will be what I will be. My name is Yahweh. I make covenants. The, the name Yahweh means I'm a covenant maker. I keep the faith. I love you. I'll care for you. I'm your God. First commandment. There aren't any other gods. Just me. I'm for you and I'm not against you. Let's go. So you can start to see how then all the other things fit together. And then you come to the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, which we find to be such an inconvenience, right? It's amazing in America that you have a good church, a successful church, if a third of your membership comes to church on Sunday. Really, a third, right? At St. John, it's about 65% or something like that. But still, the commandment is everybody in church on Sunday because, as the Lord says, 
life is really hard and it wears you down. And you're going to need me to take care of you. I'm going to need to bind your wounds and forgive your sins and energize you with my Holy Spirit. And this again is the difference between Israel and everybody else. In every other culture, even now, you test this, in every other culture, we have to serve God. In every other religion, we have to serve God. Christianity is different because in Christianity, solely, God serves us. So why do you come to church? Not so you can be a good boy or a good girl. You come to church because God knows you need it. And God will meet you here to give you all you need to survive and then to flourish. And this then is why we do the liturgy, because the liturgy contains all the different things that the Lord has for you. He has his holy name. He has the forgiveness of sins. He has his holy word. He has his holy supper. He has time for you to pray and to have your prayers answered. He has time to give and to receive. He has time to bless you on your way with the benediction. He sends his angels to protect you. You'll need that. This is going to be a tough next week. I already know that because last week was a tough week, as was the week before, as were all the weeks before that. So the first three commandments, the first three words, the first three expressions of God's love are these. I'm God. I love you desperately. Here's my name. You can get a hold of me anytime. And just to be sure you're well cared for, I'll meet you here every seven days. We'll set aside the day to spend together. I'll serve you and I'll make you whole. This is going to be great. The Ten Commandments, Law Gospel. Their gospel until their law. Every word can work two ways last week, right? The word speaks a word. If you embrace it, it is the greatest thing you've ever heard. If you refuse it, you are on your own. But human history is a long, long story of people who are on their own and ruined themselves. All right, big pause. We okay? Part way there. Does that make sense? I mean, can you... Can, uh, you one of the things, there, there'll be some break point, or maybe there won't, where you'll actually ask me a question. But I know, here's the thing. I'm a normal pastor. You wind me up and I talk. And I keep talking until you talk. And if you don't talk, I keep talking. It's beautiful. So, well, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But um, just questions about any of that? Yes, please. Well, that's, you're, you're good for that. And I, I actually want to say I appreciate you for doing it. Thank you. Um. I, I brought it up when Pastor Kendall was here, you know, being confirmed in 1980, the word fear meant fear. Yeah. Um, and the Ten Commandments were thou shalt, or thou shalt not. Yeah, yeah. Was there a change in teaching at some point? Was there a, you know, this is, this is somewhat new to me, even though I've been a Lutheran since I was baptized in 1967. Yeah. Was there a change or, or, I mean, law is great. I mean, those of us who are parents know 
the quickest way to get a kid to stop something, doing something, is law. Yeah. The more lasting way is gospel, of course. Perfect. But law is easy. And so is that... Oh, you're so good. Was there a change somewhere? I think, I think uh, well, a couple of things. You know, one should be always careful of criticizing those that go before because we act like their life was easy and our life is hard, right? So you always have to grain of salt this whole thing. However, um, see, you put your finger on it when you said the law is easy. And we tend to take the easy way out, Right? Uh, one of the things about the Christian life is, one of the things about love is, love is really hard. It's really hard. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, lend and expect nothing in return. That's the Christian life, right? We can hardly stand that. The number one reason people quit their jobs in America? Not money, that's number three. Number one, appreciation. So do your job every day and never get a paycheck and never have your boss say, nice job. But keep going to work. That's hard, right? So I can't really speak to it, although I will say, you know, I was born in 57, so I got 10 years on you, but I'll just tell you that those 10 years were just like the ones you described after 67. Somehow this got lost or was misunderstood or not emphasized enough, or I'm not sure it really matters, but you shouldn't trust me and you shouldn't trust the people who baptized you in 1967. You should look at the text and see what it says. And I'm only trying to give you things from the text, right? And I've given you very simple things from memory, which I'm sure that you know, because you've grown up in the church. You know everything I've said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul strength. God is love, John 3.16. You know all these things, right? So what I'm begging you to do is assemble them in a different way and see where it takes you. And then ask yourself, isn't this more like Christ? Because we're going to read some stories about Jesus starting next week. And they're the most beautiful stories of Jesus coming to sinners with great kindness and love. The woman caught in adultery, the prodigal son, the woman at the well, the lepers, right? The blind man, Bartimaeus. If you start to look at the stories, you will see the only people Jesus ever gets mad at is pastors. And the higher level they are, the madder he gets. The only time Jesus ever turns the table over is when he's on the Temple Mount with, all the, with the bishops and archbishops, right? The closer you get to the temple, the madder Jesus gets because the more you should know and the more grievous your sins. But for normal stiffs like you and me, this is great. Jesus loves me. Jesus for me. Jesus forgives me. Jesus stays with me. Jesus is mine. And your response and mine should be, I love to fear, love, and trust you. Right? We're going to end today by talking about your um, very insightful comment about the law and the gospel and how it's applied, for example, to children, but then also to us. So we're going to come back to that. And I actually want to see what you think about this because... As the scriptures say, it often sets people's teeth on edge, but I think it's the truest thing going. So we'll come back. Last thing, okay? Yes, please. What would you say, well, the way I'm thinking, all of that confusion happens because God is for you, but not really. That's, that's, there you go. Man, you are a damn sinner. I'm not sure you can stay till quarter till. Not really. Very nervous about you. Not really. 
Absolutely. And then I want to go hide in the garden. Or go your own way. Yeah. Have nothing to do with them. Recreate your own life. God is love is easy, except not really for me. That, see, and that, see, that's exactly the point. That's exact, and that's what you say when your kids disobey. That's what you say when you lose your job. That's when you say when you get sick. That's when your best friend dies. This is what you say when the world goes haywire. That's, God is love, but not for me. Not really, right? So not really is the first line, God is love, and not for me is the second line, right? Yeah, everything can kind of be boiled down to this. I once, um, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned was from a marriage therapist who said, 99% of the people who come through my door for therapy have the same problem. They feel alone and unloved. And you know, I thought about that for a while, and I thought, that's everybody I meet too. If you come into my office, Barb, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to talk. I'm going to sit like this. I'm going to think about why the players are so bad and how they end up on Sunday night football, even though they're so bad. But then in, a mo- in like 20 minutes, then you go, do you understand, Pastor? I'm going to go like this. I think I understand, Barb. You feel lonely and unloved. Then you're going to say, Pastor, you're like a genius. You must have gone to pastor school. I can't believe you could do that. But see, I already know what the answer is in advance, and so do you. So track this back. Everything, everything in your life where you fail or sin is because you think you're alone and unloved. God is love, but not really. God is love for everybody else but me. God is love, but he wouldn't act this way if he really was love, so he must not be love. You see it? It's, I've done things way too bad for that to yeah, so that's another one. I'm so horrible, he, couldn't, he can't keep up with me, right? Here's a little gospel for you. God forgives more sins than you've got. Right? He forgives more sins than you've got. His, and more. And the one you're going to do tomorrow. Because his predisposition towards you is grace, his attitude. This is God wakes up in the morning and goes like this. I love Rumsey. And maybe Jesus says, yeah, but he's being an idiot. He says, ah. I love him anyway. He's my idiot. It's like that. That's what God does in the morning over coffee. Right? But see, you see how simple this is? I mean, a chimp could do this. Except we can't do it, right? Because we don't, you know, because of the doubt. That can't possibly be true. Right? So, um, faith agrees. And unfaith disagrees. When you disagree, you're on your own. When you're on your own, your life is horrible. If you want to know why your life is horrible, it's because you're on your own. If you want to know why you're on your own, it's because you disagree. Make sense? You got it? But this would be a good way for you then. The next thing we're going to do is, you know, how you make confession. You make confession by saying, where are the points? One way to do it is, where are the points where, I think, where, I'm, where I've gone on my own? Where are the points where I d- disagree? You know, where are the points where I don't think God really loves me? You doing okay? Other questions about this? I know it seems simple, but yes, please, David. Can you explain what mammon worship is? Sure. Mammon worship is just stuff. So stuff, it gets... So just think of it this way. Here's God, and then something bumps God out of the way. So for some people, it's a new car. For some people, it's being really important in social media. For some people, it's themselves. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's power. Whatever, right? It's when anything else goes to point number one. 
right? Ma'am is just stuff. So, you know, if stuff goes, but not stuff doesn't get everybody going. For some people, it's power. For some people, it's vengeance, right? So the sin is when anything else gets to point number one. But stuff is easy because it's so nice, right? Because it masks our pain. Pleasure masks our pain. Cures our depression. Makes us feel important. Whatever. Pick something, right? So the commandments are about Jesus, about the Lord staying at point number one. You still okay? All right, let's do the rest of them then. So this is how it is between God and you. But then how it is between God and you is the way it is between you and everybody else, okay? And this stuff is just so obvious um, based on love. It's just so obvious. So honor your father and your mother because, you know, love them. You know, they're not perfect. In fact, in many cases, they're horrible. But loving them doesn't mean you have to give in to them on everything, and it doesn't mean you have to do whatever they say whenever they say it. Loving means there's an objective standard. God is love. That love is expressed in virtue, kindness, peace, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, right? And so you love your parents according to love. Um, You don't do whatever they say. You do whatever God says. Where they match up, that's honoring them. If you do things they ask you to do, which are sinful, you actually dishonor them. So to honor your parents means to treat your parents the way God would have you treat them. And you know how to do that. Anything in love. Um, You should fear and love God. So first God. That um, we don't despise or anger our parents or other authorities, but honor and serve and obey them. Love them and cherish them. So for all the people that you're going to talk about now, so first we talked about your relationship between God and you, right? So like this. Now we're going to talk about your relationship with other people, but the relationship is just the expression of God's love for others, right? And so um, towards your parents, your closest folks, you love them and act in love. And, you know, now these are easy. Don't murder. What does this mean? Because of God, because God, don't hurt or harm your neighbor in his body. Your neighbor's body doesn't belong to you. So you don't have any, any purchase, any call on your neighbor. So you can help him and support him, but you can't hurt him because you don't have any authority over him. The sixth commandment, don't commit adultery because that dishonors your spouse. That's anti-love. Uh, you know, what we always say when people get married here is that, you know, and this is so interesting, people are freaking out because, you know, marriage is coming in all shapes and sizes and, you know, um, all kinds of people and multiples of multiples. And, you know, Christians are like, it's like they have vertigo because, you know, they've lost their way. You know, there wasn't much difference between that and people in the 1950s, you know, sleeping with their secretary and going home to their wife or having a mistress or whatever, right? We shouldn't be so, you know, stirred up about how everything is going to hell. Things are always going to hell. Christ loves the church. A husband loves his wife. That's the gift that God gives us. And anything that breaks that in any direction uh, will be horrible. 
And just wait, you'll see, it'll be horrible. It's not always horrible in the first 10 minutes, but eventually it will be. Um, you know, suffering will win out. But for you, I love you, and uh, love Miguel. And so, you know, uh, for you, God says, I love you. And so I'll, I'll, I'll let you live together in a way that mimics the way I love the church, right? Fear, love, and trust God that we lead a sexually pure and decent life. In what we say and what we do, husband and wife love and honor each other. So, so you see, this becomes on how you work with other people. You know, with your parents, you love them. With other people, you love them and don't hurt them. With your spouse, you love them and care for them so that they flourish. And then in your broader life, you know, it basically boils down to be happy with what you've got. Don't steal, because stealing sets you on the path to having mammon at point number one. We should fear and love God so that we don't take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in a dishonest way, but help him improve and protect his possessions and income. There's enough for everybody. Help people flourish. God will help you flourish, but never ever steal from somebody else. And then, um, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Here you go. Um, Don't give false testimony, which is, I mean, we live in an age of, of, you know, lies and blasphemy. It's crazy. Because why? Because lies are powerful. You know, if I can, you know, if you and I, can have a secret about him. It gives us great power over him. It changes our relationship to him. We're allies, he's alone. We love each other, we don't love him. And we're protected from anything he might do. In fact, we'll have to undercut him if he tries to go any farther. You can break multiple commandments with one blow. So lying is one of the, you know, one of the, most juicy and powerful ways to sin because it empowers us. It's a conspiracy theory. We know things that other people don't know. Let me educate you. If only you knew what I knew. Let me tell you. Fake love, right? And so destroying other people because once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. Once someone's lied about you, comes to mind, and you have to work desperately hard to make that go away. So lies are tremendously powerful people, are tremendously powerful things for people, right? Don't do it, because it'll come back to you at some point. I mean, this is the thing you should remember. You know, I said to you, hell is when you get your way forever. Heaven is when God gets his way forever. At the end of the day, someday, the Lord will square all this up, which is why you don't have to worry about it, nor do I. But in between, you know, you make your own bed and you lie in it. You know, if you want to live as a person who's, you know, impure and a liar and untrustworthy and, you know, on your own and given only to things and not given to people, don't worry, hell is going to find you long before your death. Just wait and see. But actually, don't wait and see. That would be horrible for you. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so we don't tell lies about our neighbors, betray him, slander him, hurt his reputation, but defend him. I mean, this is just unbelievable. I mean, you can't even, you can hardly, it's almost laughable how different this is from the world in which we all live. 
You know, when you can't, you know, any piece of media or social media or news, you sort of go, hmm, you know. Defend him, speak well of him, explain everything in the kindest way. In the old days, 67, you learned and put the best construction on everything, right? It's a very nice way to talk. We'll construct our world in a way that is beautiful. Put the best construction on everything. And then 9 and 10, don't covet your neighbor's stuff or people. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, servants, ox, donkey, computer, Ferrari, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Right? Be happy with what you've got. You know, the Lord will take care of you. Be happy with it. That doesn't mean you can't earn new things, you can't work hard. But you know what? Just be content with what you've got. For some of you, you know, to give you more would be a disaster. You're not able to manage more. For some of you, more is on the way because the Lord wants to see what you'll do with it. You know, you can't really figure it out in advance. To be content doesn't mean to... It doesn't mean not to work hard, not to strive, not to plan, not to construct. It doesn't mean any of that. To be content with what you've got is the day's own troubles are sufficient for today, as are the gifts. I know there are some things um, that's clear to me now in my life that the Lord didn't give me because even though I wanted them desperately, that it wouldn't have been good for me to have them. Right? And there are other things I've been surprised to have. You might find the same thing in your own life. But if I'm convinced that God loves me and is for me, that God is my friend, my ally, right? And that obedience is good and that faith agrees, then my whole life looks really different. I do actually want to do, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to do one kind of important thing. So I gave you a couple of things. One is from the great theologian Karl Lagerfeld. If you pick that up right in front of you, right? It's the one that uh, has the first reading on top is Acts, right? Is this, a great, is this a great natural law expression of love? I'm just pleased with what I'm doing, and I'm lucky to be in great conditions and with people I like. I don't have to battle with anybody. Everybody does exactly what I want them to do. Perhaps that's my suggestion. If you do something that you love, you won't need to force yourself to do it. If you love God, you won't need to force yourself to do it. Love and discipline, are they different? See, I mean, even a Paris fashion designer can figure it out. No, love and discipline, they're not different. They are the same. And then uh, a little thing from Elizabeth Scalia. This is the one that says salutation on the top. But this is the great confusion then of freedom and license. License is you do whatever you want. Freedom, you do what is proper to you within the bounds of who you are. Hardly anyone believes it, but it's true. Obedience, that is limits, or listening, or discipline, or following, obedience brings tremendous freedom to our lives. But we can't possibly know that unless we practice it. Nobody can talk you into it, because obedience is often painful to start. You just have to do it. You do it and then you believe it. You do it and then you know it. You do it and then you learn it. It doesn't work the other way around. Friend. It's exactly the same as daily prayers. So you start your prayers 
then your prayers go dry. And the only way out is A, stop, or keep going. And the only way you get out of it is if you keep going. So my favorite story about this Mother Teresa, right? Wins the Nobel Prize. Everybody thinks she's a saint. In her biography, she says, I served 50 years in India. I only had light two times in 50 years on the train to Delhi for the first time. And then it was about 30 years in. She said, I went to Rome for six weeks. All the rest of my life was darkness. Mother Teresa, goodness sakes. She did all that she did in dryness and darkness for 50 years, which means she didn't feel it. She didn't think her life was worth anything, but she didn't disagree. She did what she was meant to do in obedience and faith and love. That's what makes her a saint, because not that many people can do the right thing for 50 years without some sort of reinforcement. Anyway, the last thing, um, this one that's on the front cover of a St. John thing. This is a little bit controversial, and so now I'm going to go all the way back to your 1967 comment. Norman Nagel is the greatest theologian I've ever known, and uh, he sometimes set Lutheran's teeth on edge but he also understood Luther better than the Lutherans. And so this text, I often give this to young pastors, and it regularly gets them out of joint until they understand it. But I'm going to preface this with a single sentence summarizing. Nothing good happens by force. Now, for you, very sophisticated in your question, capital G good. Nothing totally good nothing purely virtuous, nothing good happens by force. Lo, young pastors often say to me, I can do all kinds of good with force, right? This, of course, is true, protecting the innocent, right? Or, um, you know, apprehending criminals or, 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 right? But big G good, the total perfect virtue, nothing totally good happens by force which means everything, anywhere where force has to be employed. So anywhere where the word is used as the law means that somebody has disagreed, somebody has disobeyed. This is what I want you to test, okay? And if you think about it this way, things will open up in a new way. Every word can be used two ways, a law way and a gospel way. When you have to use the law, it means somebody has disagreed, disobeyed, must be punished. When everything is away in the gospel, it means that all is love, pure obedience, and pure freedom. Everything can be said a law way and a gospel way. By the way, the law is holy, the gospel is holy. It's the same word, right? It's in the application, or it's in how it strikes us. Whenever we do anything merely because we have to, by compulsion. We are not acting as free sons and daughters of the kingdom. If we pay taxes because we'll go to jail if we don't, we act as slaves and not as God's free children. 
not as Peter and Jesus did when they paid their taxes together. The motive of Christian action is not force, but love. We live from the gospel, not the law. There's a ton going on there. But our source, our impetus, our energy, our motivation. Christ never gets behind his friends with a sword or a whip, because he doesn't have to if they're his friends. He gets inside them with his love, a love that makes us free to want and achieve what God wants and plans. Faith agrees, love agrees, faith obeys, love obeys. Therefore, Jesus goes to Gethsemane, by the way, in great pain and suffering. Jesus goes to Gethsemane and moves toward the cross not at the point of a sword, but moved by the love of God and the love of us. First table of commandments, second table. Love God, love your neighbor. Willingly all this I suffer. Love alone wins any worthwhile victory. So now I actually want to embrace what you say and then be wary of it. Your children disobey and they must be corrected. They don't disobey. Theoretical children that belong to the next door neighbors may have been seen disobeying and perhaps were punished in the darkness. Yes, children disobey and must be punished, but that's already a failure. It doesn't mean it's bad. It means it's a failure. It's necessary, but it's a failure of love. Love alone wins any worthwhile victory. And to do this, it must be willing to forego force and suffer we immediately default to force because we are sure that we are pure and we want our way and we want our way with God and we want our way with other people so we default to force because certainly we know what's best in every situation and I will have my way. When a man strikes you with his fist or with his tongue, there you go, fifth commandment, eighth commandment, and you strike back, fifth commandment, eighth commandment, you have been defeated by him. He lured you into sin. His enmity has won the engagement, and enmity is double. He did it and you did it. If he strikes you and you do not retaliate, turn the other cheek, do good to those who hate you, lend and do not expect to be repaid. If he strikes you and you do not retaliate, then enmity remains single and a little discomforted. If someone strikes you and you don't return it, they don't quite know what to do. Things have gone off script now. By refusing to be made into his enemies, Jesus has no enemies, so I have no enemies. Jesus has no enemies. You can't have enemies. Your enemies are powers and principalities and darkness, demons. There's no human that you can say, That person is my enemy. By refusing to be made into his enemy, you have taken the first step toward love's victory of cleansing his heart of malice and making him your friend. Thus sin sets us up against each other is overcome. Only love can overcome sin. 
Though it often means suffering long, the overcoming of sin that divided us from God cost Calvary. Because it was love's victory, it achieved the true victory, not merely one of external appearance. And so this is very important. The law gives victory of external appearance. Your child can obey you and hate you at the same time, which is the best force can do. The best force can do is get its way. Force cannot make you love, and it cannot make someone else love you. Love is the way of the gospel, not the law. At times, there is nothing left to us but to use force. So this goes to your point, and you very said it very well. At times, force is the last resort. But when we use force, it is an acknowledgement of the failure of love. So if you just think about American politics today, everybody is embracing force, maybe not harder than ever, but at least as hard or kind of at a high level of you know, force-love ratio. People get their way, but they hate each other. And they hate the people over whom they win. When we use force, it is an acknowledgement of the failure of love. Only when love has exhausted its possibilities do we reluctantly resort to force. So our first goal is not expediency or straight-line power. Our first goal is saving our neighbor, forgiving their sins, teaching them to love, turning the other cheek. To protect against things getting worse, it can be necessary, but negative achievement. Positive good is the work of love. All our good hangs on Jesus going to Calvary. Does no sword spell defeat? Through Lent, we follow along with Jesus, his way to be our Savior. But are we following ever closer or slipping from his way to something more reliable? Um, the reason that you thought there might have been a change could be that you've changed and found sort of a new window into the gospel, which would be fabulous, right? And I'd love to say the same thing for me, that I've changed in some way and learned just a little bit more. But Christians, forget about all those other people, Christians and Lutherans, um, and in our generation, and maybe other generations, I don't know, I didn't live then, but um, we are quick to judge we are quick to get our way. We think, if I could just have my man elected, if I could just um, get my program in place, if I could just control things, then the kingdom of God would arrive on earth and all would be well. These, of course, are all mistakes. And so now we go back to the very first day we met together where I said, we don't talk about ourselves. Every mistake is a mistake of talking about ourselves. But if you talk about Jesus, Jesus wants this, Jesus loves, Jesus cares, Jesus energizes, Jesus sustains, Jesus forgives, Jesus is my ally, Jesus loves me, 
Jesus never gives me up. Um, That's the church. And the goal of you joining here on this two square blocks is to have you be part of a church like that. And frankly, you know, my apologies, and then I take it right back to you. So you've been a Lutheran your whole life, and yet you're coming here, you know, to have a bagel with me every Saturday morning. But this is the reason why. I want this church to be different. And if you didn't learn this, I didn't. If you didn't practice this, I didn't. If you didn't have somebody like Dr. Nagel say to you, this is what love means, I didn't till I met him. And you don't see what is possible when people live by love and the gospel instead of law and force. I didn't until, you know, I did. Then, this place can't be different. And we're trying to be different. We're not trying to be big, you know. We're not trying to be successful. We're not trying to be a prototype. We're not running seminars. I like it best when everybody else just leaves me alone. Because there's a lot of work to do, and most of the work that's done in the church is wasted energy because it's not done in the way of love. But just for us, in this two square blocks, if our group, if we could get the other 38% to come to church every Sunday, and, um, you know, if we could never gossip and always work in the way of love, and if we could be really generous, you know, if every day could be like this, right? We have 100 people show up to give out $50,000 to poor people on a Saturday morning, and it's not that big a deal. That's easily within our can. And then if you can figure that out, and, you know, I'm just about done, but if you could, you know, you're younger than me, if you could, like, kind of take it to the next level, that'd be cool. That'd be the church. And you should remember that in every generation, the church forgets this. Just as we have to pray for the Holy Spirit every morning to come into our hearts, we have to pray in every generation that the church would live by love. Anyway, so that's the whole point. That's why this takes so long, because it's so hard and so foreign. But part of the reason you hang around so long is to see that when people actually try it, it works and life becomes way, way better, right? So anyway, that's the whole point, Um, and thanks for bearing with it. Just questions about any of that stuff? You're way too polite. Usually I have one rabble-rouser in the group. I may have to recruit a rabble-rouser over Christmas if you all won't stand up a little bit. Um, Okay, honest question, and I'm fine either way, but... um, if we meet next Saturday, will you come? Just be honest. Are you too busy? Like it's too close to Christmas? If you say it's too close to Christmas, I'm completely cool with that. But otherwise, I want to come and I want to read the story of the prodigal son, which is the only story in Scripture. If you only had the prodigal son, you'd have everything. But um, can you come next week? Do you think you can come? You can't come. Okay. So that's that. Thank you very much. You guys can come. You guys know. Yeah. See, people are starting a year, but you're good. And you're good, uh, but half of you, so I'm, at least half of you can't be here. Um, let's not go, because here's the thing. 
It really matters that you have a common experience. This is kind of why, you know, we go so long. I know you're going to be gone sometimes, but you have to have this common experience and common baseline because otherwise, when you walk in on a Sunday morning, you, you actually have to have this common baseline of expectation and experience. We're all in it together, and when we're all in it together, this works out. So, um, see, that's the whole point. The, this whole point is practice for you. I mean, you sort of tell, I actually don't care if we have more members or a really big church. I really care, though, I really care that you taste and see that the Lord is good. I really care that you are disciples, right? I really care that you, regardless of me or St. John, that you would reorder your life in a way that is divine, right? That's what I care about. So to do that, you know, we kind of got to all be in it together. And, and I know that you're busy and you travel and Christmas is hard. And, you know, I always feel like I can sneak an extra one in and it'll be okay. But um, so let's not go. Let's think about coming back. Pro- maybe the 8th, but certainly the 15th, I think, are the Saturdays. I think it goes 1, 8, 15 on Saturday. Certainly not 1, but maybe on 8. Let me test the winds when I get back and uh, after Christmas, and then we'll see. Okay? Say it again. Yeah, and it'll be in the email that goes out to, um, well, you know, you get the, do you get an email? Every, yeah, so you get, should get an email from us once a week. Okay. Um, other than that, you know, come when you can for Christmas. If you haven't come to dinner, uh, to, this is your last chance. Uh, Wednesday night, there's dinner at 6 and to say, sort of candlelight and some quiet at 7. You know, come for, come for that. And then uh, through the season, uh, two times on Christmas Eve, 4 and 7. Evening services at St. John are always at 7. Daytime services are always at 10. So 7 o'clock on Christmas Eve, 10 a.m. on Christmas morning. You know, unless it's a Sunday, but it's always 7 and 10. So, okay. Don't worry, you're fine. I'm way over, so I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, okay, so I'll, but I'll be in touch. In the meantime, if you need anything from me, um, you should begin to tap your pastors. If you need anything in any direction, you should, you should call us. Um, that would be good. All right, please take food home. I'm sure there's probably Ziploc bags. If not, put them in your pockets. Uh, <laughs> take it all home because it won't be, nothing will be still good in the, in the beginning of January. And then, you know, travel safely and take good care of yourselves over time. But we'll meet again in January, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love you. Good to see you. Thanks for putting up with me. We'll see you next time.